for those that haven't guessed yet, uh, Pastor Rick Ivey is our senior pastor. He is on vacation uh, today, this morning, and so he'll be back in the office tomorrow should you need him. And he'll be back here on Sunday, uh, standing in this spot. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We pick up exactly where we left off last Sunday. Jesus had said, I, I came so that you could have life, indeed so that you could have it to the fullest. And we pick up right after that Jesus continues in chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When the hired hand sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and runs away. That's because he isn't the shepherd. The sheep aren't really his. So the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them. He's only a hired hand, and the sheep don't matter to him. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I give up my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that don't belong to this sheep pen. I must lead them too. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me. I give up my life so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I give it up because I want to. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it up again. I received this commandment from my Father. May the reading of God's holy word be a blessing upon all who hear it. Not a whole lot of shepherds anymore are there. Uh, it's not a job that you seek out at career day in high school. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and we don't see a whole lot of shepherds. There's not too many people using a shepherd's crook in their daily work. Uh, I suppose if you go to a comic club, maybe they use one there to pull somebody off the stage. But not a whole lot use that type of tools anymore. But shepherds were pretty common in the Old Testament. It was pretty, pretty often that you'd see a shepherd, you probably knew one. You read about them all the time in the Old Testament, and so the Israelites listening to Jesus would certainly know what a shepherd was, would certainly know all of their responsibilities, all of their job descriptions. You see, Abraham was a shepherd, Isaac and Jacob were both shepherds. After Moses fled Egypt and went to Midian, Moses was a shepherd as he's talking to God in the burning bush. God tells him to throw down his shepherd's rod and it becomes a snake. In Numbers, when God tells the Israelites that they will be wandering in the desert for 40 years, he tells them that they will be shepherds. For 40 years. It's not a very happy story, that one. And then when Moses appoints, his, appoints Joshua to be his successor, God tells Moses to do this so that the Israelites aren't like sheep without a shepherd. There's a long history of shepherding among the Israelites. And it's about protecting sheep, it's also about having a livelihood. It's about the exodus and the promised land. It's about 
the greatest prophet in Israelite history in Moses, and it's about passing on the leadership of that position to his successor, Joshua. And after getting settled in the promised land, after all the judges, after Saul, after getting settled and the kingdom is starting to be established, a young king rises to the throne, and his name was David, and David was a shepherd. And that's how he started out. And King David was the greatest king in Israel. And so the language shifts to include now uh, this royal idea. A shepherd is king, or rather the king should be a shepherd. The king is the shepherd of Israel. And that lasts throughout the monarchy over 400 years. The king of Israel, the king of Judah, should be the shepherd of the Israelite people. And then sometime later, after the shepherding has gone through the patriarchs, after shepherding has gone through the prophets and through the monarchs, somebody writes a prayer. And it gets passed down. And it gets shared around. And it gets sung during worship. And that prayer says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It goes from prophet to king to God. And now Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And so which one of those roles does Jesus fill when he makes this claim, prophet, king, or God? Perhaps it's all three. Last week, we talked about Jesus being the sheep gate. You'll remember there was a big door right there. And Jesus being the sheep gate meant that Jesus protects the sheep inside, a wall that keeps out the wolves, a wall that keeps out a gate that keeps out the outlaws and the thieves. And with that protection, the sheep inside will have life. They'll have life abundant. They'll have life to the fullest. That's where we ended last week that protection leads to the sheep having abundant life and we pick up there that's the that's the transfer into today and so today with jesus as the shepherd we look less at the protection that gives us abundant life and more of the responsibility of jesus being the good shepherd and how that responsibility gives us abundant life and you can think of responsibility or authority whichever word you like to use there. But it's the same way that King David is responsible for the Israelite people, is responsible for the people he governs. It's the same way that Moses is responsible for the Hebrews as they go through the desert for 40 years. Now Jesus is responsible for the Israelites to lead them, to fulfill the role of prophet and king, to lead them into life and life abundant. And he's not, just, he's not just the shepherd of the Israelites. Jesus makes a, a confusing statement during this passage. He says, there's another flock too. He says, I have other sheep that don't belong to this sheep pen. Who's responsible for them? To lead them? And then... 
it tells us that together they will become one flock. They will become one flock under the guidance of one shepherd. And I'll tell you, when we think of this other flock in another sheep pen, these other sheep, it can be confusing. What do we think of? Jesus doesn't explain it at all. But let me suggest to you that it's us. We're the other sheep. We're not the ones that Jesus are talking to. We're the other sheep. Uh, these other sheep are the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are the, anybody and everybody who's not Jewish. Anybody who ever, and everybody who's not the Israelites. That's this other flock of sheep. That's the other sheep in the sheep pen. And so when Jesus says there's others, that's us. We're the Gentiles. We're the ones who have been folded into the one flock. We're the ones who have been included. And we're the ones who Jesus is now also leading. Jesus has welcomed us through the sheep gate, which is him, and now into the rest of the fold. And together we're being led by the good shepherd who takes responsibility for all of us. Here's the thing about responsibility, though. Uh, as you, I'm sure, know and have seen in your own life, responsibility often leads to sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of yourself so that the people or the jobs that you're responsible for flourish. They grow. They get better. Over the last few years, I've become a big fan of stand-up comedy. Uh, this is something I enjoy watching. There's a lot on Netflix, obviously, right now. But in particular, I've been watching a lot of Jerry Seinfeld. His stand-up is good, it's clean, it's incredibly well-polished, and it's incredibly well-written. He thinks about each word, and if he can make the same joke with two less words and get the same laugh, he drops out those two words. It's incredibly well-polished. But I particularly love listening to him talk about his process for writing his sets, the work that he puts into it, the method that he, he goes about writing and preparing for a bit or for a set. And that process to me is fascinating. And he talks about when he was starting out in his early 20s, uh, about a full year where he would do stand-up every single night. He'd go from club to club every single night. He didn't take a day off. And he repeatedly talks about this through interviews and through uh, some of his shows. A full year of stand-up where every single night he would do a set, a 10 to 15 minute set at one or more clubs. He usually wouldn't start until about midnight and he'd be doing sets into the wee hours of the morning. And he usually wouldn't get paid for those shows. He didn't have a name, he was a nobody. He was just trying to build himself up, trying to set himself apart from the people who weren't going to make it in the business, the names that you don't know, that never made it out of the small comedy clubs in the early 80s. He tried to set himself apart and he did that by working every single night for a whole year, no vacations, no breaks. And so he sacrificed. He sacrificed his time, he sacrificed his money because he wasn't getting paid. He sacrificed his personal life. He sacrificed his sleep so that he could get better at one bit, at one joke, 
the wording of one part until finally he had made a little bit of a name of himself. He had made a small amount of money and he was finally invited on the Johnny Carson show. And that's when his career took off. And then of course he made a successful TV show. But even during the TV show, even the sitcom that's named after him, he sacrificed of his personal life to make that show as successful as it could be. And when he talks about why the show ended after nine years, despite the fact that NBC was promising him $5 million an episode for a 10th season, he said, no, I'm not gonna do that because I wanna start my life. I'm tired of sacrificing. I've sacrificed for 20 years and I'm ready now to begin my own life. And so he didn't get married until after Seinfeld ended in 1998. He didn't have kids until after that. He sacrificed a lot of himself until he became, by a wide margin, the most successful comedian of his generation. Certainly the most successful financially. Several years ago, I was leading a Bible study about Romans at the Wesley Foundation uh, Campus Ministry at SFA. We were talking about how Paul writes in Romans 14, uh, about how in Romans 14, he says, all food is acceptable, all food is clean, but it's a bad thing if it trips someone else. It's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that trips your brother or sister. Anything that makes them stumble, don't do it in front of them. And I asked the question to the group, perhaps rather cheekily, shouldn't we be allowed to eat anything that's good, anything that's clean and acceptable? Shouldn't that not be an issue? Why should we have to limit ourselves or sacrifice of ourselves because somebody else doesn't understand that all food is clean? or doesn't understand good theology, or doesn't understand what Jesus said, why should we have to act sacrifice of ourselves to just to protect them or to, to help them out? And the camp answer came back from a young woman who is now a pastor. Uh, she said, I don't really think it's a sacrifice if somebody else finds Christ because we don't eat a certain food in their presence. It's not a sacrifice when we do it for the kingdom of God. She was always smarter than me, and I tried to, not to hold that against her. When we're responsible as Christians, when we have a responsibility in our Christian walk, there are sacrifices of our own desires, and those sacrifices lead to the desires of God. But Christ is the good shepherd. And that, of course, brings with it the responsibility of tending to the sheep, but it also brings with it the sacrifice. And in this passage, Christ talks a lot about sacrifice. In fact, five times he mentions his own death in this passage, in these eight verses, and already five times, and we're well before the passion story, we're well before the cross, Christ is already preparing everybody five times. Yes, I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice myself. 
The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I suspect that that's a greater sacrifice than most shepherds are willing to make for their sheep. But isn't that the difference? Isn't that the grace of the cross? Christ takes care of us when no one else will. And more importantly, Christ takes care, care of us when nobody else can. Christ protects us all the way through the cross, through the piercing of the side, through the last words. Christ is there. Christ is the good shepherd who leads us into salvation by offering forgiveness and pardon through his sacrifice. But Christ doesn't end his proclamation there. He could. I suspect the people listening to him are sufficiently confused by what he's saying. Remember, Jesus just talked about the gate and people were confused there. Rick read that last week. People were confused when he was already just talking about the sheep gate. And now he's talking about death. I can only imagine how confused people are right now. In the first 20 verses of chapter 10, it can't get much more difficult, much more challenging to those who are listening until it does. And after Jesus says that he'll sacrifice his own life, he says, I'll take it up again. I'll have my life back. While Jesus, while claiming that he's the good shepherd, with all of the authority and the responsibility that such a title brings, he now says that there will be resurrection. He now makes a claim to his own resurrection. Christ says that he will resurrect and that death cannot hold him. Six hundred years earlier, six hundred years before Christ came onto the scene, before he started making these unbelievable statements about himself, God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel. And in chapter 34 of the book of Ezekiel, God berates the kings of Judah who have led the Israelite people astray and now into exile. It's the whole chapter. It's not particularly pleasant and it's not particularly short. A whole chapter of God berating the kings of Israel and Judah because they haven't been a good shepherd. That's the language of the chapter. chapter. You haven't been a shepherd. You haven't been shepherding my people. You've led them into exile. And so God says, God will take up those responsibilities. No longer given to a king. Now God will seek out the lost, bring back the strays, bind up the wounded, and strengthen the weak. That's what God says God will do as a good shepherd in chapter 34. And then just three chapters later, God speaks in a vision, or rather glorious vision, again to Ezekiel. And this time, it's a fantastic vision in the midst of the Valley of Dry Bones. Perhaps you've heard the story. And in Ezekiel 37, we hear the promise for the very first time of resurrection from our God. The dry bones come to life with ligaments, with skin, and with breath. We hear for the first time the promise of resurrection. 
Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for us by seeking out the lost, bringing back the stray, binding up the wounded, and strengthening the weak. And he's willing to sacrifice himself for it. He's willing to go to the cross to do all of those things. And as promised 600 years earlier by God to Ezekiel, and therefore to us, and repeated now by Christ, he was raised for it. He was resurrected for that very task. No other shepherd can claim that. No other king of Judah or Israel can claim that. No other prophet or priest or comedian can claim that. Christ can. Church, hear the good news. Christ is the good shepherd who goes to the cross to save us and rises from the dead so that we might have life and indeed so that we might have life abundantly. Let's pray. Lord, we are your people. We are your sheep. And you are the sheep gate and you are the shepherd and you are good to us. Lord, lead us, protect us, take responsibility for us so that we can be your people, so that we can follow you faithfully and fully, so that we can ultimately follow you into life and life abundantly, life eternal. Lord, we seek you so very much. We love you and the grace that you offer. So Lord, we ask your guidance now in our lives today and forevermore. Lord, we pray all these things in your name, Jesus Christ.